A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have Sally Wolf with me today. Uh, Sally and I have been enjoying some great conversation uh, leading up into this segment. And uh, Sally's got an incredible story. She is the queen of positivity. And if you knew her life, you might ask, well, how could you be so positive after everything you've been through? And yet, she brings positivity to her world. She works with organizations, individuals on finding better ways to, to thrive, you know, ways to live life to the fullest. And, you know, who you are, Sally, has really helped shape how you do this for people. Welcome to the show this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you too. So, um, you know, I, I already kind of mentioned your story, but I'm not going to tell your story. I need you to tell your story because it's, it's a very, very compelling one. So as our listeners know, we always start with a story and I'm going to ask you to share your story with us. Absolutely. So... As you mentioned, I help others to flourish and to find ways to really thrive in their lives. And one of the best ways we can do that is even how we look at our stories and how we tell them and how we really find our positivity within them. So as I reflect back, I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island. I was then and still am a member of what I call a sibling dream team. There were three of us originally. I'm the oldest of three. My sister's married, so we got a fourth to join the club. And I grew up upper middle class, always felt very fortunate um, to be part of such a loving family with really involved parents. My parents both had their jobs for, you know, decades. Uh, my dad ran a clothing store. His parents started. My mom was a teacher in the New York City public schools. And they were always really available because of that, the schedule that those jobs involved, right? Sure. So like always cheering in the stands when I had a volleyball game. I am 5'1 for reference, but somehow when you grow up in a town where there aren't that many tall people, you can make the volleyball team when you're 5'1. And I was really lucky to be able to participate in a lot of great activities after school. I love gymnastics. I got to go to sleepaway camp. So I, you know, look back on my childhood and felt very lucky and privileged. And especially as I sort of got out into the world more, I realized the good fortune that I had had even more because sometimes when you're growing up in a specific town and, you know, you're kind of surrounded, you know what you're surrounded by. And in our town, there was a lot of, a lot of families who were far wealthier than we were. So it was easy to notice that too, but really like taking a more global view of it, I was really, really privileged. And I, I was a pretty well-rounded kid and, you know, there wasn't one sport that I was singularly good at, but I tried it all and that kind of a thing. And I set my eye on Harvard pretty early, like something in seventh grade, I saw maybe U.S. News and World Report, something said Harvard was the best. And I had a fierce competitive streak in me. I had been told I was smart from a very early age. I had done well. And so I set my eye on Harvard in seventh grade, which also meant that I had the interesting twist of being a seventh grader. So I grew up in a very Jewish town. Sure. Like I never had a more happening social life than when I was 13 and had three bat mitzvahs every single weekend. And most of us chose a theme for our bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah. And my theme was definitely unique because it was colleges, <laughs> which is not what most, most 13 year olds are picking. Yeah. Um, and I naturally sat myself at Harvard. My table was Harvard. And, you know, I, I kind of had to live up to that, right? Because like I, I needed to ultimately get in there. And I don't think I realized like, oh, this is not a sure thing. And so high school was was really me throwing in myself into school. I will say that growing up in the town was called Great Neck. Um there was a lot that was great about it. And also there were things about it that were really tough. And socially I never felt like I quite fit in. I, mm -hmm. I didn't have a really good group of friends. And then here's, here's the lens that I can look back on that now, right? Like these positivity tips 
and how we make meaning out of things. I didn't have a lot of great friends in high school. I had some teachers who were incredible mentors and created a friendship with me that was everything in that moment. But I didn't have a lot of friends, you know, like my group. Yeah. And because of that, I have actively leaned into friendships in a way throughout every other part of my life that I don't know that I would have because it was something I knew was missing from that part of my life. And so I see that, you know, looking back as a gift because I understood what it felt like to not belong. And I therefore craved that. And so when I got to college, which was Harvard, mm-hmm. I, um, you know, like I, Two of my roommates from freshman year randomly assigned. Initially, we were not sure we were matched on anything other than height. And yet they're two of my best friends to this day. And all of, you know, I look back at all aspects of of college and it, it really is all about the friendship. I mean, Harvard was great for me because I met incredible people. I think academically, I could have gotten what I got there elsewhere. There are moments I thought I could have gotten better elsewhere because Harvard's very much focused on their name and the research and, you know, all of that. It's not always focused on the undergrads, but I was surrounded by extraordinary classmates and that was an incredible privilege. And when I got there, I thought I was going to major in physics because I loved math and science so much in high school. My mom was a math teacher. I had a mad scientist physics teacher And I took that first semester of physics and I was with classmates. I'm pretty sure who'd been doing physics since they were five years old. And I was like, I don't know if I'm really meant to be doing this. Like I didn't want to become a physicist at the time. I thought I wanted to become a lawyer, but I, you know, was like that, that was a real moment for me where I had to reflect. I'm really not happy with this course that I thought was the course, the path I was meant to take. I wrote on my application, I was going to major in physics. And I remember being super unhappy at this place that I had aspired to go for so long. And my dad, he, he kind of mentioned psychology. Like, I think you would really like a psychology class. And It was going into the second semester I was at school. And as it turned out, and I have a crazy memory for day parts and times Mm -hmm. and calendars and physics, the second semester of physics and the first semester of psychology that spring both met Tuesday, Thursday at 10 a.m. So I couldn't do both. I couldn't like stick with the path I thought I was supposed to be on and also try this other one and, and see and compare, which is my kind of way of doing things. And so I went to that first physics class and in that moment, it just spoke to my heart. My dad had been so right. And I remember the teaching assistant in a section that week, that first week said, put your pens down. You're going to remember everything you learn in here because you're going to enjoy learning it. It was not how physics was taught for the record. And I, you know, everything, like something woke up in me in that moment. And what a gift to be able to experience that so early in college. Of course, in that moment, it felt so late, like, oh my God, now I'm a a semester behind in psychology. But, you know, I wasn't behind, right? There's that, the universe sometimes, I don't think I realized this, certainly not when I was 18, but that concept of we are where we're meant to be. And when we stop worrying about where we think we're supposed to be for whatever reason, and just lean into the fact like, wow, how lucky am I that I discovered this now and not a year from now. And I have three more years here to explore this. And that really set the stage for a lifelong passion for psychology that has, has really remained with me ever since. Um, I didn't lean into it professionally until a few years ago, but I, I knew I loved that material and that was amazing. So did you, did, did you get your degree then in psychology or was it a minor? I mean, what, what, what degree did you end up pursuing? I ultimately got a degree in psychology. I don't know why Harvard has to like switch what they call everything. So we don't major in something we concentrate. So I had a concentration in psychology and technically I also did not earn a BA, which I know is what I think every other school gets. I have an AB. 
I don't know why they like to, they like to do things their way. Um, I never really questioned it until I realized like, huh, my resume looks backwards and everyone else has all these different terms, but, um, you don't really realize it when you are surrounded by everyone else who's at the same school as you. So I majored in psychology. It did take me another semester to declare that I initially declared applied math. It was kind of like in between it wasn't quite physics, but I, I really did always love math. And so, you know, it took me a minute to really be able to step away from that. It didn't mean I didn't love it. I wasn't looking to spend my life focused on it. And Harvard also only, it wasn't a pre-professional school. It was a liberal arts school. And yeah. so all of the majors were really meant to be self-contained and not necessarily aligned with whatever you did after, but I did do psychology, you know, I studied it and I really enjoyed my classes in it. And so why didn't you, I, I'm just kind of curious, but why didn't you then go into it professionally? What, what was your professional choice? So here's the thing about Harvard. They love diversity coming in, right? Yeah. Like our class had someone from every state, from probably every country, certainly every country where someone applied. So there's all this diversity and then everyone graduated, and this was 1997. Here were, here were, were seemingly the choices. Doctor, lawyer, investment banker, or management consultant. Yeah. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that if you were doing anything else, it took true courage and commitment to whatever your inner compass was. And you also had to know that that thing existed. And so... And I think like the options adjusted over time. I know Teach for America became really big on campus a few years later. Mm -hmm. So that was like maybe option number five. But I saw what was coming on campus for recruiting. I I, look, I wasn't becoming a doctor that much. I knew I did think I was going to become a lawyer. That was always the plan. I was going to major in physics and then become a lawyer. And even with the psychology decision, I I then thought it was going to be psych and then law. I grew up. I loved LA law. My mom told me no one could win an argument with me. Like it just made sense. I was going to become a lawyer. And then I, it was the summer before my senior year of college, I was trying to study for the LSATs. There's a section of that exam. That's what they call logic games. I think it's the section most people like least. Mm -hmm. And I went through the book and I did all of those because I thought they were fun. It reminded me of games magazine from years earlier. I, Like I loved them. Those logic games were how my mind worked. But all the stuff, the rest of the test that was all about the law, like the reading comprehension, like the stuff I was supposed to want to study. I was like, you know, I don't think I really want to be a lawyer. This doesn't look as fun as LA law. And so I, I, I put that on hold. And so then I really looked at management consulting and banking because that came on campus and consulting to me was a great way to enter the business world. I didn't have business experience. My parents weren't working in the corporate world. And I thought, okay, how can I best learn about business? It's almost like a crash course in it. And going to Harvard, I was privileged. All of these top firms came on campus. It was 1997. I ended up with several offers. And and this was another pivotal life decision point, if you will, because the firm I most wanted the time it was called Booz Allen. They had a media practice. They had a media practice. And that practice meant that instead of being a generalist where you could literally a management consulting generalist, people don't necessarily realize this. You could be assigned a case one day that your, your client is a financial institution. The next day, it may be some poultry packing plant down in, you know, Atlanta or whatever it is. The next day it's something else or the next month and you're, you're on a plane constantly. And it's also just, you're, 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 you're meant to be agnostic to the industry you're working in. And I knew myself and I wasn't agnostic. I was someone who was really ignited by passion and I loved the media industry as a consumer of it. And I do believe that when we are genuinely interested in something, we lean into it. And so I wanted to learn about business through the lens of an industry I understood as a consumer. And Booz Allen hired three undergrads a year nationally for that media practice. But that was what I wanted. And I ultimately got that offer. And I had an offer from McKinsey in New York. Mm-hmm. And M- McKinsey and Harvard had an incestuous relationship. Yeah. Like, it was the best. It was the best. 
And I remember getting such a hard sell from McKinsey. And I was like 22. I was like, I don't even understand. Like, why do you care if I, you don't even know me? And they didn't care about me, but they didn't want me to ruin their 100% matriculation. Right. And, and, and I really had to dig into myself because a lot of people at Harvard were like, why would you say no to McKinsey? And I was thinking, because that wasn't my first choice because I need to stay true to myself. And what's true to me is choosing the firm with the people that feel right and the work that feels right. And that was the choice that I made. And look, there were many moments where I wondered whether consulting was the right thing for me, Different but question. never whether never whether I chose the right firm. And that's really what began my career in 20 years in, in the business world. That's what, what an excellent story. So, and you're right. I don't, I think at, at a young age, not a lot of people are going to choose somebody over McKinsey if they get that offer, even today that that's true. And, and they're a phenomenal firm, absolutely phenomenal firm. And, you know, I think sticking with what you want to do is so important for the, your path in life. We're already up on our first break. So, um, you know, we're going to just step away for a minute or two. Stay tuned, everyone. We'll come back. We're going to continue the story here with Sally Wolf. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Sally Wolf. So, Sally, just before the, the break, uh, you had mentioned that, um, you know, you ended up choosing, it was Booz Allen over... Um, over McKinsey. And that allowed you to then move into what has become, what became at that time, your corporate work. Exactly. And I spent four years there. I got exactly what I was hoping for. I got a lot of exposure to all aspects of the media industry, clients and television and magazines. And it was a great crash course in business that I followed up with an actual course in business. I got an MBA and I ultimately went back to booze after for a year. So I graduated in 2003. It was a very, very different economy than I graduated into in 1997. And I felt really lucky to be able to return, to have a job to return to. And ultimately I then meandered for, you know, approximately 20 years. I worked in management consulting again. I went in-house at several media companies, both huge companies like Time Warner and startups. And I hit this point in, I guess it was 2015. I had just turned 40 and somehow these birthdays that are divisible by 10 become, right. They become these big life reflection points. And really, really, if we really get true with ourselves, ideally we would be doing that all the time but we're not. And so I, at that point was at Time Warner. I had the best boss I had ever had. I had the coolest job I had ever had. I had run multicultural business strategy for them for several years across HBO and Turner and Warner brothers. And then my boss and I were co-creating this incubator. It's called 150. I am still so proud of it. It has gone on to have Oscar nominees. We created it from scratch to really increased diversity and innovation and storytelling at our company. So here I was best boss I had ever had best job I had ever had. And yet I turned 40 and kind of was like, you know, I've been doing this media thing for a really long time. I think I'm ready for something else. I didn't know what the something else was, 
but I am a big believer in transparency. And like I said, my boss and I had an incredible relationship. So was so, it that you just weren't happy? I mean, what, what was, what was the trick? Cause you're right. I think we do reflect in 10 year increments, but you know, I look at when, when I decided to leave the corporate world and do something different, you know, at, at that time I knew something was, wasn't right. And I really wasn't happy. I was kind of good at what I was doing, but I just wasn't happy with it. Was, was it kind of the same thing for you? Yeah, I don't even know. So happiness is such a, a a complicated word sometimes to really even recognize. Like, am I really happy or not? I I knew I wasn't waking up, like running to work. I yeah. knew I wasn't, I didn't feel a certain level of aliveness. Like there were moments of yep. it, but the day-to-day of what I was doing wasn't igniting that level of energy in me that I knew I loved to feel. In fact, my, my boss and I would talk about it sometimes because I loved my dance classes. She knew Mondays, like I was not working late. I had a six o'clock dance class and I was fiercely protective of that slot. And she would say like, how do we, how do we ignite that here? And, you know, not that it was never ignited, but it wasn't constant. And I don't know that someone else would have been able to discern that to be clear, but because she and I had such an open and deep connection, we would talk about that. And I just, you know, in all honesty, if I look back at my corporate career and I, if I look at what I know about myself, because it all starts with self-awareness, there's so much about the big corporate world that didn't really align with what I cared most about, like ever, right? I did it because Harvard, like most people ended up consulting or banking, if you weren't a doctor or a lawyer, at least that was my perception of it. So even the first moment I stepped into the business world, I don't really know that I was living in alignment with my truest self. What, what I loved best about all my corporate jobs were the people aspects. And I will tell you what I didn't share earlier before my big management consulting uh, first job, so to speak, my real first job was being a sleepaway camp counselor, Hmm. which I did for three summers. I still, to this day, by the way, go and visit my camp. I actually am uh, going up for their staff training week this year to lead um, team building and and sort of inspiring them to begin their summer. And so I forced myself to fit into the corporate world. Everything I did was like what I did that I think I did exceptionally well was people related. But I think as you get senior, it becomes harder and harder to force that fit because you you see your way all the way to the top. And I didn't ever want that next job. And I think that was the moment of clarity for me. Like I could keep living someone else's dream and be a really good worker for my boss. But I, it's not like this incubator that we built is so special. And yet it wasn't, if I was really honest with myself, it wasn't my dream. Yeah. Do, does that make sense? It's yeah. like a, yeah. a difference. And so my boss and I had, we, we worked out a, a big plan. Like she basically, I was going to see through, we were in late 2015 at this point. I was going to see through the public launch of this incubator. We had something scheduled. Um, it was going to be February 4th. It was in LA in 2016. And HR knew the plan. Like then I was going to segue out. She wasn't going to replace me. She was going to use my headcount for something else. And as life often does, you can make these amazing plans and it can feel great to everyone involved. And something gets in the way or something, there's a twist you don't expect. And for me, three weeks after we had all of this set into place, that twist was my first cancer diagnosis. And so here I was uh, suddenly navigating the reality of getting ready for this huge launch that we had coming up and also juggling what became a second job of cancer consults and figuring out surgery and all of that kind of stuff. And how old were you when you got that diagnosis? What point are you in your life? I was 40. 40. That's right. That's right. The fourth decade. The fourth decade. And I look, I could tell you all the things I had done to to hopefully avoid that situation or at least catch that early. My mom had breast cancer when I was in high school. And thankfully over three decades later, she is totally fine. 
but I started getting screened when I was 32. So I, you know, was really diligent about that. I think I've never been a health hypochondriac, except that was the one thing I knew, okay, this I'm on this because, you know, this could be in my future. And so I chose to be really aggressive with surgery and do a double mastectomy and which actually we're talking exactly six years to the date of that. And I are from the date of that. And then I had several months of chemo. That wasn't necessarily a choice. I was told I needed chemo, but, you know, I went into it with that mindset of, okay, I, you know, this is what I have to do to get to the healthy side of this. And my boss gave me an incredible gift because like I said, she was going to use my headcount for something else. And I would have honored that I was meant to leave. I could have done my benefits are mine. I'm single. So you you know how healthcare works in this country. Um, but she basically said, you've earned your disability. You've been here a long time. You've worked really hard for this company. You're going to max it out. So she held my headcount so that I could get six months of medical leave. And it gave me the opportunity to take a positive psychology course while I was in chemo. And that was really a gift because positive psychology is the science of human flourishing. It is mm-hmm. learning. We hear all about PTSD, but if you made a bell curve of resilience, there's a bigger bucket for PTG, which is post-traumatic growth. But we need to learn how to get there. And we get there through, in that case, making meaning out of our challenging situation. And there's skills you can build to do that and learning your strengths, which are different than the skills that go on your LinkedIn or resume. And so here I was like, you know, learning this and really thinking like, wow, these like everyone should, I don't use the word should a lot, but arguably all of us should have that as, as part of our core curriculum of life. And yet I went to Harvard. I went to Stanford. I have two masters from Stanford, no less. Like, cause alongside my MBA, I got a master's in education and yet I never, and my, my college degree was in psychology. I never learned any of this. And so I, I kind of was like, there's something wrong with that. And so what happened, I, I also had the idea during that time for what would have been my first entrepreneurial journey, which was a co-working space like a WeWork, but specifically for mind, body, spirit practitioners. So therapists and nutritionists and life coaches and acupuncturists and everyone who I would put under the healer of uh, the umbrella of a healer, but you know, not a doctor per se, but people who really help us to be our best selves. And I, um, I live in Manhattan, like I said earlier, and there's real estate in cities for work like that is usually pretty poor. And yet we're doing this really important work on ourselves. And so I had this vision. I needed to raise $3 million. I felt a little bit of a fearlessness to do that on the heels of cancer. Like, okay, I didn't know how to fight cancer, but I just did that. So I should be able to raise that money. And I, I thought I have a good network. I went to good schools. Uh, people are apparently ripe to invest in female entrepreneurs. And it was a good business idea. Like the numbers worked. Sure. And so I went into that journey. I was trying to raise the money. Uh, I was not successful in that venture um, or in that effort, I should say. And I was also starting to have a lot of doubts, like health distractions. My hips started to hurt a little. I was struggling to get up in the morning, which turned out to be a side effect of a hormone medicine I was on for cancer, specifically a maintenance drug. And so at any rate, I was starting to think through like, is this really what I'm meant to be doing? And at that point, my oncologist felt another lump. And here I was at that point, I was barely two years out from surgery. So you were, I mean, you, again, just to recap, you, you had the double mastectomy. It should have all been cleared up and here another lump is showing up. Yeah, I had a double mastectomy. They get 99.9% of breast cells. Obviously they're microscopic. They got clean margins, which is what they really look for. And there's some microscopic number of cells that are left now hopefully those cells are innocuous and benign. And even if they're cancerous, hopefully the hormone maintenance medicine I was on would have suppressed that or they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't activate. Like the theory is that so many people have cancer cells in their body dormant and that's actually okay. Like the immune system keeps it in check, 
But in my case, my oncologist felt another lump and, you know, yes, it was unlikely. And initially there was the hope that it was scar tissue. When that turned out to not be the case, I had a full body PET scan because they knew if it was back in my breast, they needed to make sure it wasn't anywhere else. And this was the week of March 12th, 2018. I know that week in slow motion, that PET scan Monday was the diagnosis of my breast that Wednesday, uh, PET scan lit up in my hip. Now, the thing about my hip was for a year in 2017, I basically throughout that year had mentioned there's a subtle hip pain and it was so subtle, like a 0.5 on a scale of one to 10. But I know my body really well. I've, I've been taking dance classes for at the time it was like 12 years. It's now been longer. And I really listened to my body and that hips, it was scanned three times in 2017 and doctors at both Memorial Sloan and Sinai ultimately dismissed it as just my body. Well, the PET scan lit up there ever so slightly more. Mm-hmm. Mount Sinai still said, we like, we're not concerned. Memorial Sloan said, we're actually not concerned it's cancer, but let's do a biopsy just to put your mind at rest. Because obviously now this has like happened more than once. We know you're anxious. That biopsy unfortunately came back as positive for cancer, as breast cancer, which had spread to the hip bone, which introduced a whole new vocabulary into my life because that made it metastatic by definition for breast cancer anywhere outside of the breast, incurable, stage four, you know, terms and words that are a lot to wrap what one's heart, one's head around because there's so much implication of those words. And yet also it was at the time it was 2018, I began a medicine that didn't exist even I think it was FDA approved a year earlier. And so, you know, constantly going back to what you were saying about positivity, these are choice moments for us where I could have been frustrated that the doctors were wrong about my hip. I could have been frustrated that I did everything quote unquote, right. That I was meant to since I was 32. And yet here I was in this life moment with a new metastatic diagnosis and also hearing the doctors where I was really lucky about where it had spread or how little the scan showed. And since then I've been lucky by how responsive my body's been to the medicine. So our ability to choose exists in any moment of life and it can be an obstacle and also an opportunity moment. It doesn't have to be either or. And so I leaned into that and and said, okay, this is the card I was dealt, you know, how am I going to play it? And how am I going to choose to move forward with this and, and live this in the best way that I can. And so that really set the seed for the shifts that I made, which, which right now, all of my work goes back to that positive psychology. And I, I took a job for healthcare. Initially, I ended up at NBC universal. I got very lucky sold my soul for healthcare though, was not doing this positivity thing. And I, I reentered that corporate world with very new lens, right? The eye of living with a stage four cancer, but invisible is invisibly because I had long hair and mm-hmm. I looked really healthy and I still do. And I feel that way usually. Yeah. And how many other people were walking around with things that were invisible, right? You, you notice that at that moment when suddenly it's your story. Yeah. You're, I, got to imagine your awareness is just at a super, super high level. Uh, we're up on our next break. So we need to, to, to step away for just a minute. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and we'll continue our story with Sally Wolf. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. 
This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Sally Wolf. So, Sally, just before the break, I mean, you were talking really about what I would say, the, the choice to be positive, right? Um, you know, we've said it a few times. I've had other psychologists on the show. We know that naturally speaking, you know, as human beings, we're wired to a negative bias. I mean, I, I think that, that, that naturally it's part of our protection mechanisms. When you talk about fight or flight, the, these are things that kept us aware. And so sometimes if there's a right and a wrong way to take a situation, you know, our bias will, will take us to the wrong side more often than not if we don't have a, a high level of awareness. And under stress in particular, I think that negative side can be triggered so much easier. Here you were in it now, you're, 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 Post original surgeries, you should have been clear. You now have a, a, a diagnosis that that quite frankly shouldn't have shouldn't have happened, but it did. You know, stage four, which in and of itself is just scary. Hearing those two words together, um, I, I guess I want to explore a little bit more. I mean, there had to be a moment that that felt like it just kind of took you right down. And how did you choose to be positive in that moment? What's the advice that you would give others? Because, because I know a lot of people that would hear those things and they would just, you know, curl up in a ball. And, and unfortunately that I think that that even takes us to a point of, of becoming kind of what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I mean, I've watched people under those kind of circumstances just wither, wither away and you are thriving. I mean, I, you know, our audience can't see you, can't see you on screen. No one would know that you've got anything going on with you. You clearly are, are, are thriving in your life because of this decision point. So how do you do that? How do you actually in, in, in some, one of the toughest moments choose to be positive so in that very moment i want to be clear there was a moment i was walking across 23rd street in manhattan when the oncologist finally called me and she sounded chipper so i actually thought i had caught a break i'm like okay so it's not cancer she goes oh no it is right and this was the hip biopsy so like in that moment in my head it's like stage four right in that moment i cried And I was so grateful though. I remember there was a friend walking down the street with me. So I, in that moment, how grateful was I that I wasn't alone. And so there are these little moments where we can choose. And when I say choose positivity, uh, there's also that toxic positivity. I don't mean it's a bandaid over the rest, Mm -hmm. but alongside that incredible fear I felt in that moment, there was a friend who was holding me while I was on the phone. And then a block later, my sister was nearby with my then um, at the time, four-year-old nephew. And that kid and his two little sisters bring me so much joy and keep me so present. So it can be really helpful to know yourself because that whole day became a series of okay, what do I need in this moment, right? So often when we have like, yes, that diagnosis moment and stage four is a terrifying thing. Like it is terrifying. And to say it out loud and and staging is sort of the common language of cancer. So often that's the question someone will ask, like, well, what stage? And if you say stage four, the the look that, that returns is one where I've had to coach myself to remember what my doctors tell me and what, what I know to be true in this moment, right. And rather than what someone else is putting on me. And so that day, that day I learned I was metastatic. I then had spent a few hours with one friend, a few hours and a couple slices of pizza with another. And there's nothing that good New York pizza can't make feel a little bit better. Yeah. I hear that. And then I went to my sister's apartment and then we were with her kids and my parents came over and my brother and, you know, we build our teams in life. And one thing I say regularly is that this whole cancer journey, it has been my body, but has been my family's cancer and having that support system. It can be your actual family, your chosen family. I also have friends who were great. My boss was incredible. And so just knowing who to turn to, we don't have to solve a problem in the moment it happens. 
we don't have to get from A to Z. And I think that's sometimes where we struggle, where we can't feel, we can't find that positivity. We need to get from A to B and B to C and C to D. I had doctors who were going to figure out the plan, right? I had great teams. I actually have gotten my doctor, my, my original oncologist at Mount Sinai and my, sorry, my original and my additional at Memorial Sloan, they now work together. I am lucky that so far I've been able to have them, you know, become a team for me. And so I get both their opinions. And that was partially something that I helped to co-create because it was important to me because my cancer had kind of outsmarted or or not behaved in a way that was aligned with what they expected. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to get two great brains on this. And so we build our teams. And that was some of the very, very first advice my boss back at Time Warner had given me the day I was diagnosed. This is where your executive skills come in handy. And so when I look at that day, that's how in that moment, it doesn't mean that we don't feel some of the darker emotions, but we learn how to cultivate light even in those moments of darkness so that they can coexist. Yeah. You know, the, the, the concept of the team, and, and we could talk about any major issue. I mean, yours obviously is, you know, is, is a big one, life-threatening cancer diagnosis, but everybody goes through different points of adversity. And when you try to go through it alone, you try to figure it out alone, you don't have a support network, the information becomes very, very limited. And so does the experience to get beyond it. And I think when we get into this negative mindset, it makes it even worse. It creates stress. And we know that stress shuts down the creativity of the mind. So, you know, surrounding yourself with a team of people who are there to support you, people you trust, people to help you, you know, actually, it doesn't answer the question, but it opens the door to moving towards the answer. And it invites others in. So I was scheduled. So three weeks after this metastatic, you know, we'll call it a situation began, I was scheduled to speak at my, I had a business school reunion coming up, our 15th reunion at Stanford. And they had invited me to be one of two TED-like speakers. And for context, Mm -hmm. the other guy was like the textbook Stanford business school grad who created an amazing company and sold it to Yahoo for a lot of millions of dollars and all of that. And then there was me being invited to speak seemingly on the heels of my cancer you know, situation the first time, but in the eight weeks between my yes and that reunion, all this other stuff had happened. Mm -hmm. And so we're three weeks away from the reunion. My first two weeks of that were basically spent all over doctors, like figuring out the new, right. What, what is our plan? All of that. And so one of my best friends said, you could easily get out of this. Like you don't have to speak, like you're dealing with a lot. And I remember thinking, and, and, and you asked about positivity, I said, no, I do have to, because this is a gift. This invitation that was originally maybe for the class, this is for me. This gives me a deadline to wrap my heart around this, to figure out how I move forward and how I show up with this, right? Not how I don't show up because of it. And so that was a huge opportunity for me. And here's what happened. So I was very truthful. I spoke in that moment and so many classmates thanked me for changing the course of the reunion and bringing in so much vulnerability and and giving them permission to do the same. And that's what I've learned is the more I share, the more others share back. And so it deepens the connection that I have with other people in a way that quite frankly, I always strive, strove for that before cancer. But I think that this has a built my capacity for it yeah, in a a really amazing way. Yeah. And you know, you and I were talking during one of the breaks, um, we're both fans of the work of Brene Brown and you know, this, this importance of being vulnerable to create connection, but also to, to, to kind of recognize who you are as a human being. I think, you know, too many people want to hold things private. They want to keep them to themselves. They don't, I don't know whether it's wanting to be invincible or appearing to be invincible, or they're trying not to burden other people with it. I'm not sure what the, um, what the case is, but um, this is an important part of growth. It's an important part to create connection. It is. And so what I do now, I've created a company where I go into companies right? My clients are, you sometimes they're individuals, but usually they're, they're corporate and I'm hired by executives to really help build the capacity 
pretty much for that, for vulnerability, for authenticity, for connection, for personal development, because it supports professional development in the corporate space. So through workshops and coaching and, you know, keynotes that really share, like, I'm going to open my heart and invite you to do the same. And one of my favorite workshops that I did recently with a company was, and I use a lot of breakout rooms and things where like, they really get to have, I always kid, I never, I never get to experience the best parts of my workshop because they happen in the breakouts where I, where I'm not there, right. but it's where they connect with each other. And I can tell when they take the full time to come back in that zoom breakout and come back with smiles. Like I know, I know I've done it right. Even when I haven't been there. And there was one workshop we did on strengths and, and strengths are things like bravery or kindness or love or perseverance. They're not the things that go on your, your resume or your LinkedIn usually, although they're the things that make you, you. And they did a breakout where they each gave each other compliments based upon, cause we also, we often feel fear of vulnerability because it, it feels dark, Yeah. but vulnerability can be giving someone a compliment because you don't know vulnerability is built on uncertainty. It's there's some uncertainty in how something will be received or it may not feel comfortable to give, exactly. but it's a light, but compliments are light. And so they, they basically were going to compliment a strength they saw in a colleague. And here's the beauty. The colleague was not allowed to deflect it. Couldn't say, but I'm not really that could only say, thank you. Maybe smile. And that's it. And so they, they offered these compliments and this was not a, a long breakout, you know, a few minutes and they came back and people were all smiles, but some were also crying in a beautiful way. And wow, I was so touched. I didn't like someone gave me a, gave me this compliment about this strength they see in me, but that's actually one of my weakest, like we did a strengths finder kind of assessment. Right. It's one of my weakest. And so that's the work that I do because that, that there is no way we, we talk about team building and we talk about professional development, but without these little nuggets of self-awareness into oneself and opportunities to really connect as humans. Like we are humans who go to work. I've never, I think you asked me kind of about the corporate journey I was on. And I think part of why it never felt quite right is I've never believed. I remember saying this in the late nineties. I'm like, I don't understand. What do you mean my work self and like my other self? Like I'm this one person and I've been taking my Monday night dance class was pole dancing. And so many of my classmates wouldn't tell their, like they couldn't ever, if they got stuck at work, they got stuck at work, but they didn't want to tell their boss why I have like pole dancing. Cause something felt wrong about that. My boss knew she almost came with me to a class once. Like I'm just such a believer that when we, when we choose to be our full selves, we invite others to be the same way. And that's a permission slip yes. to so much. Yes, it, 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 it really, really is. And so, you know, I, I'm assuming that your clients eat this stuff up. I mean, you know, we, we all have these problems, but, but a client also has to admit that they have some of this going on in order to even bring you in. How do you find your clients? Uh, you know, are, are they just kind of, is it word of mouth? I mean, you bring there's, something yeah. so valuable. Uh, there's definitely a word of mouth element to it. I've actually not paid to do any marketing whatsoever. It's, I look, I got a little lucky, right? Because yeah. before the pandemic, right? When I was leaning into this work and at that point it was internal at NBC Universal. I, I pitched them on a pilot because I believed in the value to bring this to companies. And they said, yes. And it was a very slow start, but I got so lucky. I taught my first workshop, March 11th, 2020, the, the last day that most of us in New York city were in an office. Right. And so that pivoted to an online thing, but you know, in the time since, and then I was laid off from NBC, they were having a tough year, but I had all this great proof of concept data. So I considered that a real gift that they wanted to stay my client, but they also were saying, go bring this into the world. And so as I created my own company with it, I, I got very lucky and leaned into the fact that Everyone, even people who didn't necessarily or might not necessarily see a value to this a few years ago, suddenly mental well-being, suddenly well-being in general is a thing. Now, for forever, I have believed this is the next frontier to DNI. This meaning like really letting people be them, their full selves at work, having a conversation about wellness empowering people to thrive. And there's data that supports it, that reduces corporate turnover, that increases all these things that companies want, like creativity and you know profitability and all of that. And so 
I, my biggest client to date came to me through cold outreach Mm -hmm. after seeing me on a LinkedIn live. And when I said to him, what led you, and we know people in comments who he was able to get references, but I said, what led you to reach out? I mean, it was a 15 minute LinkedIn live. He said, your, your positivity, your energy. I just wanted my team to have that. So I feel very grateful because I've been able to build a robust business that is so it's just so aligned with me. It's like my camp counselor roots are basically like Steve Jobs had that amazing commencement speech at Stanford. You may have seen about, right. We can only connect the dots in a most meaningful way, looking backward. I am actually now sort of like a sleepaway camp counselor coming in, building teams, helping to helping people to be their best selves in companies, right? I spent 20 years in the corporate world. Like all these dots are connecting for me. So my biggest challenge right now is like, I am one person, I can't replicate myself. And so as I figure out how do I scale this, do I want to scale it? Do I, you know, is it just me? Like all of that, um, how do I find time to write the memoir I'm working on and, and all of the stuff I I'm always thinking about building my legacy. And hopefully that legacy is one that I have decades and decades to build, but really all of us every day of our lives are building our legacy. Even my, I have a grandma who's 101. Even if you get the privilege of living all of those decades or over a century, we're building our legacies. And so how do I spend my time to align in a way that really lights me and others up? Well, I, I certainly hope you can find a way to replicate yourself. I think sometimes that that's hard and it happens with some of these consulting gigs where it's so hard and people always want to talk with the, the, you know, the person that started it. Having said that, more positivity in this world would go a long way. If somebody wanted to find you, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, your website, email address, anything you want to share, if the website's the best way. Sure. My website, and you can email me through my website. So the website is just my name, Sally Wolf, S-A-L-L-Y-W-O-L-F as in Frank.com. And in terms of social, the place where I post, I post a lot of reflections that include well-being tips or personal you know, anecdotes like I've shared today. I've actually been doing a lot of it on LinkedIn this year. And I'm really loving that because there's a great way to engage with one another. So excellent. that's the best place. Excellent. Well, thank you again for being with us. We are out of time. So, so we have to, we have to um, move on. Uh, maybe we can have you back on the show sometime for some more conversation. I've really enjoyed having you with us today. I would love that. I would love to come back. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, folks, stay tuned. We've got more great episodes coming and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.